Learn about the history and musical challenges behind some of the most iconic horror film soundtracks of all time so you can elevate your haunt's sound. That's coming up on today's show. Welcome to the show. I'm Philip. On the HAN Show, we bring you the news, information, and education you need to prepare for Halloween. We also have a lot going on outside of this podcast, and the best way to make sure you're not missing out is to subscribe to our free weekly industry newsletter at the link in our show notes. Today, we're exploring the musical challenges behind some of the most iconic horror film soundtracks of all time in Composers of the Apocalypse. This was a panel which took place on the main stage of last year's Midsummer Scream. Today's episode is a replay, but it's the perfect time to reflect since Midsummer Scream returns to Long Beach this July 28th through 30th. Tickets are on sale now if you want to attend this year's Midsummer Scream. Enjoy. Welcome to Midsummer Scream. Please welcome the creator and host of the Grim Life Collective, Michael Collins. It got really quiet walking over here. <laughs> it was like the most awkward thing. Welcome, everybody. You have survived Midsummer Scream. Are you excited? Did you have a good weekend? Buy some spooky goodies? See your favorite actor. Come and see us. Well, thank you. Now, this is kind of surreal for me. Growing up a monster kid, I loved Halloween and I loved horror movies. And never in a million years did I ever think that I'd be standing on a stage getting ready to sit and talk with the people who scared the crap out of me. You're going to see some live performances tonight. We're going to talk about Halloween memories that they had, some stories from the industry. And, well, I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> I'm just being honest. This is uh, nothing, this has never been done before. And it's happening here. And with that being said, do you guys remember a movie called Escape from New York? My favorite. They Live. Well, we're going to start today off, tonight off, with the music of Alan Howarth. Come on out. <laughs> The pleasure of a good scare. That's what we do. People ask you, how do you make all people scary sounds? Well, we have discord, and we have release. We have quiet things. I was going to crap out of you! <laughs> That's how it works. So, uh, for opening of the Apocalypse group, I elected to play some music that I created, along with John Carpenter. He can't be left out of it. He was in the room. He pushed black and white notes. I ran the gear. He said, how about this? I said, how about that? And I share the writer's credit on all the music that you're going to hear. Let's do it.
every day through our television sets. Even when the set is turned off, look around at the environment we live in. Carbon dioxide, fluorocarbons, and methane have increased since 1958. Earth is being acclimatized. They are turning our atmosphere into their atmosphere. We are like a natural resource to them. Deplete the planet, move on to another. They want benign indifference. They want us drugged. We could be pets. We could be food. But all we really are is livestock. Our impulses are being redirected. We are living in an artificially induced state of consciousness that resembles sleep. The poor and the underclass are growing. Racial justice and human rights are non-existent. They have created a repressive society, and we are their unwitting accomplices.
thank you all. Thank you so much. Now we've got a great lineup. Our host will tell you what's next. Wow. <laughs> I didn't get to see the sound check, so this was kind of cool just to sit here and watch all that unfold. And I'm sure all of you agree that his music, just hearing it, you know it's him. You know what movie it's from. And uh, we got a whole bunch of people here to come out and talk to you guys. The first one being Holly Amber Church who scored a movie known as Open 24 Hours, and she's got a couple other, where's she at? Aha! I didn't know which way you were coming. We have to keep you surprised. What's that? A good scare is a surprise. Right? Oh, you're gonna be sitting right next to me. We got Alan, we got Holly. Next, we got John Massari, who scored the music for Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Kind of making this up as I go. I don't know who's back there. <laughs> we have Richard Band from made uh, From Beyond and Reanimator, as well as a whole bunch of other crazy titles. The man responsible for terrifying us at summer camps. Well, the music at least. Harry Manfredini. Now, I'm sure you all agree, horror movies, the visuals, you have the ones that terrified you, but it's the music that really gets under your skin. And last, we have the man behind the sounds of Hellraiser, Christopher Young. Yes. Both Christopher Young and Alan has decided to dress up. Well, you too, John. As prescribed by tradition. There you go. So Midsummer Scream is a convention or a gathering. It's a family of people who love horror movies as well as haunts. And I figured what better way to start this off than to ask you guys a question about Halloween. Not the movie, but the tradition, the, the holiday, the festive, the festival, whatever you want to call it. So I'm curious, for each of you, do you have a favorite, or what's your earliest Halloween memory? Whether it could be a, like a costume, or maybe something you did with your parents, or no matter what age it was. What about you, Holly? Well, I am a child of the 80s. So uh, Ghostbusters was kind of a big thing. Um, but in the 80s, you couldn't get cool costumes like that, like you can now. Uh, so my poor mom had to make whatever weird costumes we wanted every year. And of all the things to be in Ghostbusters, I wanted to be the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. <laughs> uh, so I just remember this Halloween vividly because my mom made me this Stay Puft Marshmallow Man costume and I was stuffed with pillows. And we were living kind of out in the country at that point, and you didn't walk to trick-or-treat. You got in and out of the car and drove around to trick-or-treat. 
and all my friends and my brother and my sister were in and out before I could even get out of the car because of the big pillows or whatever, yeah. But uh, it was an awesome costume, and thank you, Mom. <laughs> I feel like I should have had this queued up and had them each submit like a picture from their childhood. No. <laughs> We can what do about that you, post. John? What's that, Alan? We'll do it on the video. There you go. There you go. What about you, John? Well, this is a question I did not anticipate. You're welcome. And I think there's a few people here that would know uh, if I say a term, the missiles of October. Does anyone know what that means? Okay. That was one of my most memorable Halloween. I was probably five or six. And if you don't know what the missiles of October was, it was the Cuban Missile Crisis. And uh, probably about a half a mile from where we lived was a Nike missile base that we not, did not know it was there, was a Nike missile base. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, this big empty field had all these missiles pointed to the sky. And I thought, oh, wow, that's the moon project. They're all going to go to the moon. And then, so I was living in a different world than the adults who were stocking up on food and canned beans and toilet paper and what have you. So that Halloween, the kids made lots of friends. I made a lot of new friends that particular year, and I didn't really understand it until I actually heard uh, then-President Kennedy's speech, where he actually said, this is an act of war, and it, the world was coming to the end. It didn't matter to me, because I made a bunch of new friends <laughs> at Halloween. Nice. Alan? Well, I think it's good to put a timeline on this stuff. It was good, good to give them an orientation. So in my, oh, four to six to seven-year-old experience, I lived in New Jersey in the years were 1954 to 1957. So America was at its best. I, those that know about a 57 Chevy, it's just the finest. The 57 Stratus, just the finest. My wife was born in 1957. <laughs> so my takeaway, though, is of course we did trick-or-treat and all that stuff, and we play out. But there was another thing that we got into, which was making haunted houses in the basement. Halloween wasn't enough. <laughs> so we used to, you know, put the sheets up and take our friends and walk them through and put my hands in cold spaghetti and, you know, you know, try to scare them and do whatever. So that, that's really my Halloween takeaway. So I never gave up on Halloween. I was always there from the beginning. Yeah. There you go. Bravo. Bravo. Nice, nice. Richard? Well, I was born a uh, poor black child without a Halloween. And... Uh, no, in reality, uh, <laughs> I, I never experienced Halloween because I didn't grow up in this country. left when I was about four years old and uh, when I lived in Europe, first Sweden and then France and then Italy. So my experiences with Halloween uh, didn't really exist until uh, I was back in this country about 17, uh, when I was about 17, 18 years old. And uh, I thought it was fun. I, thought I, was, I was definitely, you know, into horror and, and fantasy comic books and like, you know, the Marvel stuff like Doctor Strange and all, you know, all those sorts of things. But Halloween really started meeting something to me when my daughter was born. And that's what I really enjoyed is was seeing her grow up uh, and participating and taking her around. Uh, so my Halloween memories are 
very pleasant with taking my daughter trick-or-treating. And you're Man, up you're next, Harry. You're really weird, Richard. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, try, I, I think my best Halloween stories. I've got a couple. Uh, some, some good ones, some bad ones. Uh, I grew up in Chicago, and I'm older than most of these people here. And uh, Halloween scared the crap out of me. Uh, I was always really just afraid. I, I think that's why horror movies scare me, and that's why I'm, I do, I do them the way I do, because they scare me, and Halloween still scares me. Uh, so, in Chicago, I mean, there were, <laughs> there still are, but I mean, there were guns going off and bombs, and we were out. Peep, kids were out in the streets and going like. This is like the scariest day of the year. It wasn't, you know, like, you know, bad candy. It was just, holy smoke, the world's coming to an end. So that's the bad one. The good one was on Halloween. Uh, I went to the movies at that time. I, I had just finished Friday the 13th. And we went to, oh, it was, it was playing in New Jersey. Oh, we're going, going to go see it. And there was this line around the theater all waiting to go in. And I'm going like, this is really cool. This is what Halloween's about. Uh, evidently, I, I, something really good happened on Halloween. But uh, I think the, uh, the good thing about it is that uh, a lot of these uh, conventions happen on Halloween. And we get to hang with you guys. And that's probably the best part of any Halloween, so. Well, I, I would have to say that um, before I sort of tuned into Halloween, it so happened that I too was from New Jersey and at the end of my street was a Quaker and well, until my parents passed on and the house was sold, there was a Quaker graveyard at the end of the street and I would have to walk down the street to catch the school bus. And so I remember even as a very young kid wanting to veer off the road to hang out in the graveyard, you know? <laughs> and I have memories later on of when I started singing with my, my buddies, my male buddies, we would go into the graveyard late at night and, and the crypts there, the doors, these old stone crypts, you could open the doors actually and go inside and sing. And you know, the acoustics were amazing. <laughs> so, you know, this, this, this attachment to at least the acoustics of cemeteries sort of lit the fuse. Now, I would have to say probably of, of every symbol connected with Halloween, the one that I'm most attached to is the jack-o'-lantern. Now, well, when I was a kid, back in those days, before you could buy plug-in pumpkins, pre, you know, made in China, I guess, these pumpkins you can plug in, you'd have to carve them. And what always amazed me as a kid was that every house, nearly every house in my town had, a, had a, a, one or at least one carved pumpkin. And no two were the same. 
there was that wonderful scent of the candle burning the lid of the interior of the pumpkin. And by God, I would spend many periods of time, much to my parents' dismay, sort of staring into the eyes of the lit pumpkins. And, and I kind of felt like, in a strange way, this was a conduit between the visible and the invisible world. Now, did I know that when I was a kid? No. But yet there was something really wonderfully mysterious about the jack-o'-lantern with the burning candle inside and all that it meant and that there were no two that were exactly the same from house to house to house. All over the country, millions of pumpkins were lit on Halloween night and no two were the same. And there was this ability for me to be able to stare into them. And, and it was, like I say, a window for my head to go flying out into that dark outer region. I'm going I'm to agree. Gonna, he's, he's really weird. He is really, really strange. He's very awesome. <laughs> he is really. And, and that's, that, that must be where the I found the notes, whatever. Uh, but with Harry, again, the wonderful thing about this convention and uh, this whole idea of being in Los Angeles, before I moved out, for sure, we probably, and we all would account to this, we were considered kind of freaks in our hometowns. Right. You know, I loved Halloween, and I couldn't understand why my parents were terrified that I loved Halloween. That, that was their horror, you know. And uh, when I moved out here, the first thing I noticed was that actually through the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films, this organization, we're not alone. We're not alone. It's, it's a great thing to be here together tonight to be able to celebrate the fact that there's this thing that's been inside. We don't know where it came from, but it's there. And guess what? It's never going to leave us. Yes. <laughs> We are among our people. So thank you. Thank you for being here tonight. Now, with the Grim Life Collective, we travel all over the country, and I do these one-question interviews. So this is like our one-question interview on crack. I guess you can say that. Um, I wanted to ask that because it kind of sets the tone. I mean, the Midsummer Scream, but from that point, your earliest Halloween memory to this, You've had years of experiences or years of stories. We were talking about some of them earlier today. Um, and I'm going to open this up to anybody on here. If anybody wants to share, looking back, do you have something that you cannot believe you were a part of? Like, you go, man, I can't believe I was in that room talking to that one person. Or do you have a memory now about anything, not just Halloween, but your work. Anybody have any comments on that? Wow. Pin drop. <laughs> Pin drop. Good question, Michael. Right? Well, I'll, I'll start. You said, do I have something that made me or go, go on? Or is yeah, that something what I'm that... understanding? Well, I was in New York uh, going to Columbia University thinking I was going to teach at some university somewhere, and a, fr a friend named Bill Ramal, he was a record producer and a writer, he took me under his wing, and I did all kinds of things for him, 
And one day we were sitting in his car, and he said to me, well, what is it you want to do? And I said, uh, well, I'd really like to score films. And he looked at me like, well, what are you going to write that Henry Mancini or Jerry Goldsmith or uh, you know the entire litany of composers, what are you going to write that, that they can't write? And I said, I don't know. I said, you asked me what I wanted to do if I had my druthers, whatever druthers are. Uh, uh, I said, that's what I want to do. And he said, okay, if that's what you want to do, here's five things you got to do tomorrow. And I'll be damned if I did those, if I didn't do those five things and everything changed from that point on. And it, it was four, four or five pictures later, I did Friday the 13th. So you gotta, you know, let someone, you know, is a super mentor to you will really, you know, show you the way. I didn't know what I was, I didn't even know what I was gonna write. Uh, but I knew that's what I wanted to do. So, is that well, we, we have, we have, I'm sorry. Go, okay. I'll go, you wanna go? You go. Scissor, paper, scissor, oh. Okay, well, the um, <clears throat> sort of epiphany moments like Harry was talking about, <clears throat> I, was, uh, I grew up in, in Italy and my father was making, this is during the 60s when Italy, when Rome was considered kind of the Hollywood of Europe and during that period of time they were making a lot of the spaghetti westerns and the Hercules movies and I used to go on the sets of, of my father's movies and and meet the actors and see what was going on. So I grew up in that business. And on one of the films, uh, I went in post-production to the scoring session. I had never been to a scoring session. And they were doing the music for my father's film. And I just fell in love. I guess I was about 12 or maybe 13 at that point. And it was just an incredible moment because I had never heard a whole orchestra at a scoring session. Now, I didn't really appreciate it until later on when I found out quite a few years later that the composer was Ennio Morricone. And it just left an impression uh, of, of something that was sort of an epiphany uh, moment like Harry was talking about. But I, even at that point, I was very young. I didn't know I wanted to do um, film scoring. I was just, I was a rock and roller. I was touring around Europe at the time. But lo and behold, that's one of those memories that kept coming back and coming back uh, over the years. And it was definitely one of the big influences of what I believe finally led me to film scoring. Awesome. Nice, nice. Well, for me, would be meeting the author Ray Bradbury. And during uh, my time at UCLA, we would have uh, mini film festivals. We'd rent out a uh, projector from the AV department and watch films. And out of nowhere, Ray Bradbury would just show up and read poetry, tell stories, give a motivational speech, and he'd watch the movie with us and have popcorn with us. And I, I would talk to him for you know, a few minutes because I had read some of his short stories from the uh, October Country. 
and I didn't really think much of it. Later I realized that he had written two of his books in the legal typing room, and he felt he, he owed, owed UCLA something. So if he got wind, I don't know how he did this, this was before social media, uh, he got wind that the kids were gonna, have, were gonna show Planet of the Apes and um, you know some other crazy monster movie, and he would show up. And years later, I would say three years later, uh, I was, there was a producer that said, do you want to work on a ghost movie? It's for this thing for cable television. There's a new cable TV uh, channel called HBO. And I go, what the hell does that mean? This is home box office. This is going to be their very first television series, and you get to do it. It's about very interesting ghost stories. And uh, so I did, they told me the basic idea of what was going to happen, and I did some music, and they liked it. And they said, uh, the, uh, the author and creator really uh, appreciates the music that you created. It hit all the, checked off all the boxes. And I go, great, who is it? He goes, well, you're going to meet him, you know, next week. So there I was, sitting across the street, kissing, sitting across the table from Ray Bradbury, giving me more direction on other music that we were going to do for his TV, first TV series, based on his short stories of his books called the Ray Bradbury Theater. So that was one of my big moments. Nice. Now that's cool. Like <laughs> Thank that. you. That's really cool. Uh, Holly, so the world of horror, for the most part, it always had this, this feeling, like there was a lot of, it was, it was mainly men who were making the horror movies, they were making uh, the special effects, they were, they were writing the music. And you, you have come on the scene. Uh, my wife and I, we saw Open 24 Hours a long time ago. Oh, not a long time, but when it first came out. We fell in love with it. And you've been making your mark in horror history. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about, I guess you would say, um, some of the, some of the things that you're most proud about. Yeah, I think um, definitely that movie. But I think too, I like. Um, I I feel like I'm trying in a way to break some glass ceilings here. You know, yeah. um, these are all amazing men, and I love all of them, and they're very inspiring. But if I can inspire some young women, you know, and be like, hey, she looks like me, and I could write some people's heads getting bashed in. I can write music for that. Women can do that too. Um, to me, that's cool, you know? And one thing I'll say about um, the horror community, you know, uh, just they're so loving, you know? And when I got my first horror movie uh, with director Patrick Reynolds, who I've done several movies with him, I remember I had a meeting with him and I was a little nervous because it was my first horror and I was like, and I thought that, I'm like, will he not want me to do it because I'm a woman? And also this is dumb, but my last name's Church. I was like, is he gonna think my name's too nice that I can't do a horror movie? Um, but we just met and we got along. He's like, I love your music. I want you to do my movie, you know? And so I always credit him, thank you, you know, for giving me my start. Um, but I feel like the community's embraced me a lot. Um, everyone's amazing, men and women and everyone, you know? Um, but yeah, if I can kind of be, you know, a shiro, I guess, for, for uh, other women in the horror community, great, yeah. And 
There's lots of women composers doing great things now in other genres. There's women directing horror. They're kicking ass, you know. Um, and so, yeah, let's all just keep creating. It's awesome. <laughs> good, good, good. Now, some of us were talking backstage in the green room about, uh, I don't really know how to bring this up, about cop instances or ways that... Uh, do you want to talk a little bit yeah. more about this? So we, we just had a, a fun little conversation in the green room. Richard Band and I discovered we had almost, like, almost, almost identical. exactly, yes, almost identical experiences of the cops coming to our house as we were working on horror movies. Um, and, like, I was telling him my story, and he said, mine's almost exactly the same. Um, where I was working on a horror movie, particular scene with a lot of screaming on it, and uh, you know, a few hours later, I get a bang, bang, bang on my door, and I peek out, and it's two cops, and I was a little nervous, like, are they real cops? Are they not? Are they are they gonna murder me if I let them in? Um, but I was like, I guess I better let them in in case they're real. Um, so I opened the door, and they they were like, ma'am, who else is in there with you? And it was I was just home alone, you know, working, and I was like, just me and and uh, they said, no, who else is in there? And I said, no one. And they said, well, we got reports of screaming coming from here. We're going to have to come in. And I was like, okay, come on in. And they, like, they put their hands on their gun, their gun holsters. And they come in the house and they look around and um, they saw no one was there. But they were still very serious. And they're like, ma'am, what's going on around here? We got a report of screaming and someone yelling this. And they said the exact line, verbatim, from the scene I'd been working on in my horror movie. Um, and then I got embarrassed. I was like, oh, I think I know what's going on here. <laughs> um, and so I explained to them, I'm like, I'm a composer. I mostly work on horror movies. I'm working on a horror movie today. That's a line from the scene I was working on. And they still stone-faced, ma'am, we're going to have to see this movie. And I was like, okay, I'm probably breaking an NDA or something, but come on back. So I took them into my studio, and I played them that scene, and they heard that exact line, and then they lost it. They were laughing so hard. Um, they're like, yeah, yeah, that's what happened. And they're like, oh, what are your favorite horror movies? And we had a great conversation. And they were like, you have a good day now. And they left. Yeah. So Richard had a pretty similar experience, actually. No, that's, that's true. <laughs> Practically identical. The only, <clears throat> the only real difference is uh, location. I, I hear the sirens, and I look down from my, from my balcony where my, my studio is upstairs, and there are these two cops down there, and they have their, gun, their guns drawn, point, pointing at me. And uh, so that was a little off-putting. But from that point on, they came up the stairs, and the story's identical up to the point where they started laughing, you know, and I showed them the scene, the same exact thing. And, um, and then the guy says, well, what's your name? I told him my name. He said, oh, did you score Reanimator? And, and, and I go, yeah. He says, oh, I love that movie. So then he starts, they're both laughing. The same sort of scenario, right? Then they became big fans, and they left. So there you go. Uh, Alan, uh, one of my all-time favorite movies is Escape from New York, and I, I love everything uh, that you've scored, that your music touches, but Escape from New York, for some reason, every time I hear it, I just get down, I'm like, heckins, yeah, this and that. Um, what, how do you find 
your inspiration for, for making your sound? Because I was talking to you earlier, you said that, you, um, that you're a sonic composer. And I had to ask you what that was because everybody's you know, composer or they write music, but what is a sonic composer and how do you create these crazy synth sounds? Like, where does that come from? Okay, well, to, to start, um, I branded myself as a sonic composer because I do sound design as well as music. I've, I've crossed both sides. I've, I've, you know, I've, I've done the whole sound design for Army of Darkness or, or The Little Mermaid or Back to the Future, all these other, and Star Trek, you know. Yeah. So there's a whole other, there's a whole other side of me that, that's, I'm still a composer when I do sound effects. That's the whole point. It's all music to me. Birds are music to me. Whales are music to me. The whole life is that. So, hence, sonic composer. That's why I said that. I make everything from sound. Gotcha. gotcha. All right. Now, back to the, the Escape from New York. I'll, I'll give you a short, short story, which I never planned to be a horror movie composer. I was just being me, and I was on this journey. And through the oddest of circumstances, a big burly biker friend of mine named Pax Lemon from Cleveland, I'm from Cleveland, he was now in Los Angeles, I was here with his band Weather Report, and he hears a, a conversation about, hey, we need to know, somebody knows about synthesizers from these two sound effects editors, Richard Anderson and Stephen Flick, both guys went on to Academy Awards and all sorts of stuff, but we're all kids. This is 1979, and he says, oh, you gotta talk to my buddy Alan, man, he works for Weather Report. And they go, well, the one at seven or the one at 11? Yeah. <laughs> But they give my number, I go down, I meet them. What are you doing? We're doing Star Trek, the motion picture. My very first movie. I'm from rock and roll and jazz and, and the world of music, but I have all these skills from the recording studio and making music that they wouldn't ask me to do something different with it. It's like, well, yeah, I could do that. What do you want? And, and, and so the, 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 the magic, so, so anyhow, I, I made an audition tape that was the sound of the Starship Enterprise and it became the Starship Enterprise. I won the gig. I had a home run right out of the first tape, boop, and I did six Star Treks. The picture editor from Star Trek, the motion picture, was Todd Ramsey. His next assignment was Escape from New York. And I had been giving Todd my tapes and stuff like that, you know, promoting myself. And, and so John, uh, Todd calls me and says, you know, you should meet John Carpenter. I bet you guys would get along just great. I mean, you, you, you know, you're the same age. He's from Kentucky. You're from Ohio. I mean, why don't you meet him? So John come, come over to my dining room studio. I had my sense up. I had my analog stuff. I was, I'm a gearhead. I love gear. It's a drag that it's all in a, in a laptop now, to be honest with you. But it's a lot easier. So to continue, so John comes over and I, we, we hang out and eat coffee and a couple things and talk and at, at the end of the conference he goes, yeah, let's do it. That's it. I'm scoring Escape from New York with John Carpenter. Am I blessed or what? Yeah. Right? So, Here's John's thing. He's, he's John Carpenter. I mean, not only did he write the movie, he directed the movie, he edited the movie, he knows everything. So I'm, he's going to sit down and play the black and white keys, but I'm supposed to set all this stuff up and keep it running for him. And he says, sometimes I tell him, turn technical, so he go, don't even tell me, that's your job. I want to know about that stuff. You know, he's just detached from the gear, obviously, as an artist, paints with synthesizers. So that was my thing. So I've always been a sound designer, shaper, um, I integrate sound effects in the music. I mean, you, you think of, uh, you know, the 1812 Overture and they had cannons going off. I mean, this is, the, you know, it's not that odd to, to integrate across. So, so th that'd be it. So I did, the last, last tag goes, goes into the last thing about the, the moment of why, why you were Halloween or scare. I mean, always that person in that never way, but part of the So we're finishing Escape from New York, and 
we're, we're mixing. And John looks at me and goes, hey, man, you know, I got to do the next, my next movie is The Thing. I'm going to be busy. And they want to make another Halloween, so you're going to do it. Just like a handoff, like, I'm too busy. You, you go do Halloween. Well, here we are. So who knows where it comes from and how it gets there, but just keep your antenna up because it's coming. Also on the topic of sound design and all of this, it, I'm sure a lot of you have noticed that over the years, music scoring has morphed and a lot of that has to do with incorporating sound within, within music, whereas it used to be you had music and you had sound. A lot of, uh, a lot of scoring these days are incorporating both, so they, they're, they're becoming, they're morphing uh, as, as, as uh, scoring evolves, especially in scoring for games and all that. Most people, they don't hire composers anymore, they hire sound people who will do the scoring as well as sound and all the design. So it's, 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 it's changing. Some would say for the better, for the worse, but whatever it is, it is changing. Now this might sound like a blanket kind of question, but whenever we're making our videos, we have this weird phenomenon happen. And it happens all the time where if, I'm, if we're creating something and we think it's going to be awesome and people are going to love it, usually it, they don't. <laughs> and if we think it's going to be horrible and it's going to bomb, that's what people relate to and then it takes off. When you guys were making, this is open to anybody, this is like a blanket thing. When you were scoring Hellraiser or Reanimator or Friday the 13th creating these sounds, killer clowns from outer space, did you know at the time or have a feeling that this is catchy as hell and that this is going to happen, that this is going to take off? Well, I can say for me, I have a little presentation I'm going to do that addresses that question. Okay. But I think he's, Chris has got a good, well, <clears throat> indeed, story. Uh, <laughs> do I have a good story? I have a story for sure. I can sure. tell it for you. But, you know, Absolutely not. At the time that I worked on Hellraiser, little did I know that this was going to paint the, my life, you know, that this was going to have such a tremendous altering effect on everything that I touched from that moment on. Every note that passed through my head, somehow I was going to have to be thinking about what happened during those Hellraiser days. Now, it was a blessing, truly a blessing. I have memories of Clive specifically telling me, you know what, Chris, I just saw, and I'm aware of the score you did for Nightmare on Elm Street too. I did the second one. He said, that's precisely what I don't want for this movie. <laughs> Meaning that in the case of Nightmare 2, we're not caring so much about the characters. It's a slasher movie, I guess, in essence. And he said, my story is, and my movie is a love story. Really, at heart, it's a sick love story about a woman who allows herself to be talked into doing whatever is necessary to bring this abusive guy back to life the brother of her husband. And he said, if we can't communicate that 
in this movie through the help of your music, we're in trouble, deep trouble. I don't want it impersonal. I want it to tell the story of this woman who will do anything, absolutely anything for love in the worst of ways. And so that sort of planted a seed in my head. And of course, so as Hellraiser is, as is so many, as are so many other great horror movies that involve deformed people or monsters or whatnot, stories as well, uh, novels, whatever, uh, they're tragedies, truly tragedies. And so uh, this emotional element um, I had to tune into, and, and I didn't know I was doing it at the time, of course, but somehow it was just the right movie at the right time in my head was in the right place. And I think, you know, Clive was probably biting his lip going, is this really going to work with this guy? I, I, I don't know anything about him. I was recommended to him by the head of post-production, Tony Randall, who then went on, uh, New World Pictures, who then went on to score Hellbound and develop, and, and, and he created a great career for himself. But this was a love story. Now, I can tell you this moment that convinced me in my own kind of small way that maybe I had made a mistake being a film composer. This was back in the days when there was not enough money to project the picture on the screen when we recorded the orchestra. The orchestra played to a click and with no picture. And it wasn't until after the film, the music was recorded, that it was transferred to mag, and then the mag was cut against the picture, and we all sat around the flatbed in this tiny little room at New World Pictures and viewed how the, mu the music was actually playing the picture. And Clive was there, and Tony was there, and the picture editor was there, and, and me in a tiny little room. And my favorite cue in that movie score actually is the scene in which uh, Julia has these flashbacks and she remembers when she first met Frank and then they make love and it's cutting between them and her husband walking up the stairs holding uh, with the, these assistants or movers uh, the uh, mattress and then it climaxes with uh, them making love and then him cutting his hand on a nail. And, you know, I'd written this cue and, and, I, and I, I was hoping Clive would like it. And I just remember we, we, we played that scene with the cue and after it was completed, there was dead silence in the room. And I, I couldn't figure out whether this was a good thing or a bad thing. And I remember we all stood up. There was something that caused us all to stand up, every one of us, and we started hugging each other. It was a great moment, and I think I started crying because I, I thought, I, I was surprised. I went, wow, I actually did something magical here, maybe. You know, this music is changing the outcome of the scene. And Clive was thrilled. And so that was one of those great bonding moments where I went, you know, maybe, maybe I am supposed to be a film composer after all, you know. Anyway.
But in answer, I think, to your original question, we don't know at the time. We do our best. You know, we, we use our judgment and we take gambles, you know, and... Uh, put our heart into put, it. Put, put our heart into it, our minds into it, try to figure it out from all the different angles. Some, uh, I know some composers, like, like Danny Elkman, he'll, he, he'll write three cues for every scene. I mean, it's amazing he has the time to do that, I don't. <laughs> but he'll write two or three cues for every scene because he doesn't know which way the director wants to go, so he wants to have options. Uh, but we never know. We just use our best uh, creative judgment. Now, John, you were saying that when it comes to killer clowns from outer space, that that's part of your presentation, mm -hmm. right? So tell us a little bit more about this. Well, you want me to just you want me to just play it for you? Okay. Yeah. I have I have a whole little thing prepared for you. It's kind of like my you know, midterm science project. And uh, do we need to, uh, can you take the headphones off when you get a chance? Sure, one second. Yeah. Having a little setup time here. There you go. Okay. Great. And the headphones. There's that quietness again. <laughs> Is there a pin drop? Have they seen the back of John's jacket? Do we need him to turn around? Everything about yeah. this man is killer clowns. <laughs> He's not clowning around. No. Okay, you see here. Hold on a second. I've got to warm up. Are you going to sing? Well, that's how it started, but that's not how it ended up. So I, I want to thank everyone for being here. I, I can't tell you that your love for what we do is why, why we're even here, is why we get up in the morning and create. So I think all of you people deserve a big round of applause. So let me take you back in time, okay? Um, this area is very significant for me. I grew up in this area, not too far from here in San Pedro. I worked at uh, the Union 76 oil uh, refinery every summer to pay for my uh, education at UCLA. Um, when I was a kid, uh, my parents or my aunt and uncle used to take me around the corner here to the Pike, which was one of the most terrifying experiences in my life. It was the discount Disneyland. Basically, Walt Disney took his Imagineers to the Pike and said, please don't do anything like this for my, um, for my amusement park. So uh, I'm going to play you a little bit. There's the Pike. There's the crazy maze. There's the laugh in the park. God. That's what a four-year-old kid had a 
that was considered, wow, let's go in there. And I'm going, and, and it's like I'm in a Jordan Peele movie, like in Get Out. We're outside, I have this like dumb smile, but inside I'm curled up in the corner begging for the event to be over. So uh, a few years later, you're going to see a 17-year-old John. That's my band, Crisis. And that's me on the left, and that's in the middle is Doug and Doug. And then there's Joe. Um, so uh, what's, what's also significant about the area, as, uh, as a band, we used to go to concerts a lot, live concerts. And we used to go as a band, or we'd go individually, either here at the Long Beach Arena or at uh, the Forum, and we'd see such bands as Frank Zappa, Led Zeppelin, Kiss, Yes, The Who, Rolling Stones, Deep, uh, Deep Purple, Black Sabbath. Lightweights, right? Just all these lightweights. All these right. lightweights. And uh, let me see here. That's, that was the Long Beach Arena. And... Uh, there was one band I saw called Blue Oyster Cult. And it was festival seating, and I would sit right there. I was right up on stage walking back and forth, and then I realized there's something special about these musicians. It's like there's no distinguishing between their instrument and the individual. They were, it was like as one. And their music was very interesting to me, is, is that it was very classical in its form. And it resonated with me so much. And I said, I, I, there's something in here for me. As a 17-year-old, I was looking for something to express myself musically. So uh, our band decided we were going to embark on some original music. So I went home, and I started playing with this. Scale. There's an evil creature here. I'll play it up here. Maybe, maybe, maybe they'll activate something else. And I figured, well, who am I kidding? It wasn't that complicated. It was a little simpler than that. It was more like this. And I figured if we play that with like heavy metal guitars, it's gonna sound awesome. And if I'm a big fan of Lacuna Coil and I listen to their music and I'm going, ah, they got it. But anyways, I brought it to the band and they said, play that second chord. I go, what's that? I go, well, it's like a D flat major seven with a raised 11th. And they go, uh, huh, that's like a jazz chord. We don't play jazz. Yeah, we don't play jazz. So I, I went back to the drawing board, and I messed around again, and I figured... And I thought, man, they're going to dig that. We're gonna, that's going to rock. And they said, play that second chord again. What the hell is that? It's a D-flat major seven chord. Uh, that's like still a jazz chord. Yeah, we don't like play jazz. So, 
needless to say, we created no original music. So years later, I saw this. I worked on a movie and I fell in love. So uh, this was from the creative minds of the Kyoto Brothers. So I sat down to work at this marvelously creative, bizarre as hell movie. By the way, people stopped rolling their eyes in their head when I said I worked on Killer Clowns from Outer Space around the year 2014. <laughs> if I said, what do you know, I've done this, I that, and the other thing, and one of my favorite little films is Killer Clowns from Outer Space, and I would get this. Uh, that doesn't happen anymore. Thanks to you guys. Thanks to you guys bringing it back to life, watching it every time it's on, sending me letters, talking about it, doing artwork. So here I was, diligently working on it. And I said, when I saw that famous scene, as we all know, after the big chase, and the clowns are uh, marching in that weird, disjunctive way onto the village, I said, wait a minute. I can pull out that thing, and I started playing it to the video at the time. God, that sounds awful. That's not working. No, I know it's there. I know it's there. I can feel it in my brain. And I just said, you gotta I come out, kind of like Michelangelo when he has a big uh, piece of marble. He knows the sculpture is inside. So then I said, maybe if I break it up. So that was my light bulb moment, and I saw it. It was like what you said. I said, that works. That works. Ray Charles used to, when he had a groove down, he goes, that's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. And I just knew, if they told me to change it, I think I would have said, nah, not change it. Oh my God, they're here. from Outer Space Kids, everyone. Yay. So I told the Kyoto Brothers, I said, you know, I want to take this theme and I want to do it like heavy metal distorted guitars. And, they, and Charlie said, that would work perfect. However, it's got to be a guitar that a killer clown would play. And I go, okay, okay. I'll, I'll work on that. So what you're gonna hear, I'm gonna play you an audio file that's gonna have the original Killer Clown March as it appears in the film, and right after that is gonna be a manifestation of my 17-year-old psyche of what I really wanted to hear. And here it goes. And by the way, thank you for having this all set up. Thank you, Ellen. Anyway, so here we go. And if you want to play air guitar, stand up and just do it.
now my 17-year-old version. Now, let me give credit. The performers on that second track were members of the Dickies. We had Ed, Adam on drums, Ben, and my good friends Jonathan Padilla and Ben Serper playing that. So that, those were all live musicians, and it's like, finally I got a band to play it. Okay, now we're looking at the near future. How cool would it be to have an all-day event, the composers of the apocalypse, where instead of us talking, I mean, we could talk about our music, but we can perform it in an all-day event. I mean, we have, we have the, the jazz festival at the, at the uh, Hollywood Bowl. How many people would be, how awesome would it be to have all your favorite, all day performed, all your favorite horror music from your favorite horror movies? Don't you think it's about time? Okay, so I, I'm going to uh, give you a rare, rare treat. Uh, the branding department at MGM was very, very kind to allow me to play this next uh, piece of film I'm going to show you. And uh, for that, I'm very grateful to them. So this is a live performance in Hollywood. It's myself performing with the Dickies and the Hollywood Chamber Orchestra and we're performing with a thousand very, very happy Killer Clowns from Outer Space fans. And the cast and crew were there, the filmmakers were there, and they described it as quite surreal. So if we can dim the lights uh, and play something, this was filmed and edited by our friend Matthew Haichu, who's out here in the audience. I really hope you enjoy this, so if you can dim the lights, and I think we have it here.
Thank you very, very much. Hello. And my friends were there. Richard was there. Chris was there. We're still cheering. Sorry. Thank you, everybody. That was a great show. That was a that was, Yeah, my friend Chris was there because he said, by God, if I'm going to see this thing, whether it crashes or whether it takes off, I'm going to be there for you, John. He was there. You were there. You weren't there. You should have been there. And, and a few people in the audience, I think, have been in there. I don't know. Who, who was there? Who, was anyone here that's been there? Well, stand up for crying out loud. So did you guys enjoy it? Wouldn't, wouldn't it be great if we all like did something like that, but like all day? That's awesome. That is the, that uh, concludes my presentation. Thank you. Well, thank you, John. And sadly, we weren't there. It, it happened right before we moved to Hollywood. So it was really nice to see that. And with that, I want to thank you guys for, for coming up here on stage and, and talking some music and playing some music and entertaining these fine folks. And to Midsummer Scream and everybody who's involved with it, thanks for having us out and putting this on. And uh, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Today's episode was edited by me, Philip Hernandez, with post-production by David Swope and original music composed by Chris Thomas. Support for today's episode comes from Gantam Lightning and Controls. Gantam illuminates attractions worldwide with the world's smallest intelligent spotlights. From Dark Hour to Netherworld, Super Mario Land to Hagrid's bike, Gantam goes where other fixtures can't. See what you're missing with a free demo? Sign up at gantam.com demo. That's gantam.com demo. The HAN team includes Daryl Plunkey, Emily Louise Rua, Megan Spells, Gavin Burns, and Omni Adventures. Until next time, stay scary. This is a Haunted Attraction Network production. <laughs>